Hello and welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, we peek inside the Sifted newsroom, discuss the biggest things our journalists have been reporting on and speak to some of the people behind the headlines. This week, we're going to discuss two exciting raises, one from Danish startup Heim, which could have the cost of thermal energy storage for industries, and the other from Xlinks, a UK startup building a 3,800 kilometer cable along the seabed to bring solar power from Morocco to the UK. We're also going to interview Yassine Gallim, a partner at Copenhagen HQ'd VC Hardcore, which just raised 15 million euros to invest in Web3, believe it or not. And we're going to be chatting about why the sector might not actually be over. Finally, we'll talk to our senior reporter, AI expert and podcast producer, Tim Smith, about why London-based Gen AI startup Stability AI has radically changed its business model. We should also let you know that this is very sadly, violins, the last episode, at least for now, of the Sifted Weekly podcast we are going to be slightly changing things up next year we're going to be bringing you more one-to-one interviews with some of the biggest names in europe's startup scene you'll have probably heard episodes we've done in the past with people like tavit himricus of wise and vc van plural reshma sahoni from seed camp and many other top names top brains in the ecosystem so i will be hosting those chats on the regular not quite as regular as the weekly podcast but please stay tuned we'll be bringing you lots more insights from them in 2024 next we have a story from denmark where startup heim has raised 8 million euros for technology that could have the cost of storing energy amy how did this solution and the startup come about Yeah, so this is a very intriguing one. Two years ago, Seaborg, which is a small next generation nuclear startup based in Copenhagen, made a surprise discovery. So it realized that a molten salt storage solution using sodium hydroxide could halve the cost of storing green energy and be a much more viable alternative for industrial companies that otherwise have to rely heavily on fossil fuels. That could be really good news for their bottom line, but also obviously for the climate. So this company, Seaborg, has spun out its new energy storage solution in a sister company called Heim Energy, and it's now raised close to 8 million euros in funding and is building the world's first molten hydroxide energy storage plant. Woo-hoo. What exactly does this, what does the solution do? What is the solution? Okay. So if we take a step back, the industrial sector is very reliant on fossil fuels. And one of the reasons for that is that big factories, etc., need to use energy 24 hours a day because they need to produce stuff 24 hours a day. If they were to use electric boilers to create the steam that they often use in manufacturing things, they would need to buy electricity throughout the day and therefore they would have to buy electricity at the points in the day when it's really expensive. If they use fossil fuels like gas and diesel, they're not hit by those fluctuating prices, which is one of the reasons that they're, you know, big industrial companies are reluctant to turn to electricity because it can end up being four to five times more expensive than gas and fossil fuels. What Heim Solution offers them is a way to take electricity from the grid when it's cheap. So what Heim can do is enable factories, etc., to 
take energy to heat the salt when the electricity is cheap and then use that energy that's been stored up to create steam and power its processes whenever it needs it. Very interesting. What's next on for this company? So in a place called, the, the name I'm probably going to mangle, called Ebbs Jug in Denmark, the company is setting up a 1.6 megawatt hour industry scale pilot to test out its molten hydroxide storage in a in a real setting and demonstrate the operations and systems control the next step will be to set up a 20 megawatt hour or about that demonstration storage plant on the danish island of bornholm to partially replace a fossil based boiler this is quite a big island just off the coast of um, sweden and at the moment if the cable that brings energy from sweden is disrupted it's totally reliant on this boiler so this is quite a significant project for the island and it's actually being paid for by the eu's horizon 2020 scheme and will be the largest battery in denmark and from one cable to another, we have an update from the crazy subsea cable startup X-Links. So the French oil and gas giant Total Energies has invested $25 million into the UK startup, which is building a 3,800 kilometer long cable along the seabed to bring solar power from Morocco to the UK. Eleanor, tell us a bit more about the project. Yeah, so we've got the UK, which... You know, it's not sunny all the time, as we can know just by looking outside the window. And so X-Links and also Octopus Energies, who they're working with, wants to bring the sunshine from Morocco to the UK using this giant power cable. X-Links says this cable can contribute 8% of the UK's power needs, which is not an insignificant number, but obviously it's going to cost a lot of money. The round this time, as you said, Amy, was $25 million, but X-Link's CEO, Simon Morish, told us earlier this year that the project is going to cost £20 billion in total. Adding to Total Energy's investment this time, it's now secured £50 million. Morish told Sifted at the time that the company has £5 billion of equity financing lined up, and I would assume that they'll probably also get you know, government support and debt financing and lots of other capital. Yeah, so in September, the project was declared of national significance by Claire Coutinho, the UK's energy secretary. And that means that planning applications will go direct to central government streamlining X-Link's building process. It's also petitioning the government for what's called a contract of difference, which is an agreement from the government that would guarantee a fixed electricity price for the power X-Link's Produces so that if wholesale prices fall below the price agreed by the government, it would pay X-Links the difference. So X-Links is not actually the only one in Europe trying to do this. There are at least nine interconnectors planned in Europe, including Viking Link, a 760-kilometer cable under construction between Denmark and the UK, and the Hansa Power Bridge, which is planned to run from Germany to Sweden. And as demand for renewables grows, there is increasing interest in these cross-border electricity cables, interconnectors. So you can bring energy from a place where it's sunny or there's more wind to a place where it's less sunny or less windy. Very cool. 
For our first interview this week, we have Yassine Galim, partner of Copenhagen-based Hartcore VC, on the show. The firm announced this week that it's closed 15 million euros of a new 20 million euro fund that will focus on investing in Web3 protocols and tokens. Protocols refer to technologies that allow for decentralized data sharing, and tokens refer to digital assets on a blockchain. Some members of the Sifted team have been pretty skeptical in the past about Web3 and crypto things, so we thought we should bring Yasin on the show to convince us why we should be bullish going into 2024. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us what's the big vision. Why these technologies now? Sure. So... If I if if I take it really from the top, right? So I think we all know that we've been going through a phenomenal software revolution over the past 30 years, right? Software has really changed the way that we do a lot of things in our daily life, right? And and at hardcore, our view around Web3, crypto, however people want to call it, is really that this is the next stage. This is the extension of that software revolution that we've been going through. And people might not see it that way yet, but I think it will become more and more uh, obvious, you know, in, in, in a few years. And the reason why I say that is that, you know, uh, what, what this technology, meaning the blockchain enables us to do is really for the first time ever to have this notion of digital ownership. So we can own things online. And it started all with Bitcoin, right? Which was one form of digital ownership. So really apply to money and, and value, right? Uh, but with Ethereum and other smart contract uh, platforms, that notion of ownership really transformed to software itself. So for the first time ever, we can now own software. And I'm not talking about owning shares in a company that creates software, right? I'm talking about owning the software at that software layer, right? So it's think of it as if you could own a piece of the HTTP protocol, the SMTP protocol that you use every day for sending emails, right? So what if those protocols had been built as businesses instead of common goods? And what if you could own a piece of them, right? So this is really what, what I believe, you know, this, this, this shift is all about. And this is why it's so exciting to us, because we just think that this is where software is going. I thought it was also interesting exactly what you guys are investing in out of the fund. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I think when you talked to Mimi Billing, a reporter for the article, you talked about how there's a lot of stuff that's already been built, actually. And so now we're kind of moving on to a, a different stage in crypto and Web3 yeah. innovation. Yeah, so I think, you know, a lot of the criticism also from, from people centers around this idea, okay, guys, it's been 15 years now. I mean, where are these applications? Like, you know, you've had the time. But I think that as much as I understand those criticisms, I think people underestimate how much time it takes to build very complex things and also the level of complexity involved in, you know, building those underlying blockchains, right? So people forget that, I mean, the internet was created in the 60s, right? Or at least invented, right? Uh, and it took us, you know, I would say, I would argue it's probably until the, you know, 90s that we started seeing some of those benefits. And then it's really with broadband and with, you know, I would also argue mobile, right? That we, you know, that we really got... I would say the full benefit of, of what the internet uh, was enabling, right? And I think the same is, is true here. So blockchains are fairly new. I mean, they were invented in 
2008, right? And, and in the grand scheme of things, I think it really took 15 years to get to what I call the broadband moment of, of this space of Web3, which is where I think we are now, meaning that we have infrastructure in the case of you know, some of these smart contract programs like Ethereum, other layer ones like Solana, layer twos that are now you know, fast enough and cheap enough to be used for developers to build applications on top of in a way, the end application would have a user experience that, you know, compares to some of the products that we are all used to, to, to using, right? So I think no one wants to use something that is, you know, deliberately inferior, right, to what they're used to. And up until now, that was the case of a lot of those Web3 applications, right? They were just very clunky to use and people had to jump through barbed wires to just understand you know, how to use them in the first place, but that is really changing fast. And so we think that we're, we're really there where, you know, we can start really experiencing the very first applications, native crypto applications that people are going to be and mainstream users are going to be uh, drawn to. And what do you think some of those applications are going to be, broadly speaking? Yeah, so I think that some of the... Um, some of the applications are already there, actually, and we don't really and we don't really see them. Or some sometimes, you know, they're distasteful to some people. Or we we all have biases that that mean that we don't always see them. But I'll start with those that I think are already there. So I think that one that we in the West often take for granted is money and store of value. So I think if you ask someone in in, in Argentina or in Turkey, you know, do you think that you know, crypto has some applications, they would just laugh at you or they would think that you're crazy for even asking the question. Um, so in a way, uh, you know, w- when you've experienced inflation, you know, over 100% per year and you just have complete distrust in your in your government and in your institutions, I mean, th- the prospect of like self-sovereign money and store of value is is absolutely transformative. And that's why you see that, uh, you know, a lot of the usage you know, in crypto actually comes from from those regions. So I think the money use case store of value is is already a major one, maybe less important to us, you know, in the West, but uh, at global scale, I think it's already very important. The another one <clears throat> that I think is might also not be as clear um, unless you use some of these protocols, you know, regularly is just the it's an extension of that is the a new and improved financial system right so you can do a lot of things on these crypto rails in a vastly superior and more efficient or cheaper way than using traditional you know fintech rails so you know uh, the last time i had to to send money internationally uh, from one currency to another you know using the traditional banking rails i mean you know was really not a great experience Doing that in crypto, you know, takes a click and, you know, uh, a second and is virtually free, you know. So I think that anything around remittances, you know, international money transfer is already used quite a lot. Again, maybe not as much in our part of the world, but but it's already the case. And I think the same applies to lending, right? So I think I'm, you know, borrowing money on, you know, 
protocol like Aave, for example, and I'm, I'm currently doing that, you know, at rates that are way cheaper than, you know, than what I could get from my banks. And it takes me literally a few clicks, right? So the whole process is, you know, of, of some of these financial services is, is being re-engineered in a way that I think is, is dramatically more uh, transparent and, and often cheaper, right? So it's still not uh, easy to use. And I think, you know, the UX has to come a, a long way. Uh, but I think these things are live and, and in production already uh, today, right? Another example that I like to use is, is art, right? I mean, people just re don't realize how much this, uh, you know, the crypto and, and Web3 in general has changed and is changing the art market. So digital art as a category really, you know, came to existence thanks to this technology. And today, I mean, we have pieces of digital art that are being sold for, you know, uh, tens of millions of dollars at Christie's, at Sotheby's that are entering the permanent collection of, of, of the MoMA and other great museums, you know, on, uh, on, on, on this planet. And, and, and if it wasn't for this notion of digital ownership that I touched on earlier in, in the chat, that just wouldn't be possible. You know, we had great artists creating equally great uh, pieces of, of digital art, you know, 10 years ago. But, you know, if you couldn't credibly own them, right, what good did it create? I mean, these, you know, they were starving artists and, and, and no one was really paying attention. And now this technology has really changed the lives of the, of these artists and really created a new movement within, within art that I think is really here to stay. <clears throat> so I think these are just three, you know, three applications, but, but I do think that we're going to see a lot more of them in, in the coming years that we're very excited to, to invest in. So at a high level, I think that, you know, the way I think about this is very much like what we've experienced with the internet, like those applications didn't come all at once. They came sequentially over 30 years, right? So it all started with media uh, and then it was e-commerce and then it was fintech and then, you know, et cetera, right? Uh, and I think the same will be true here. I think the first uh, field of application will continue to be finance, right? Because it is so native to, to what crypto is. So we're very excited about, you know, anything decentralized finance from lending to trading to um you know, anything that essentially we're used to, to doing through some of these fintech apps, I think we'll be able to also do it through, through some of these protocols. Uh, we're very excited about entertainment and gaming in particular. You know, we've had the premise of that during the, you know, Axie Infinity, etc. And, you know, these experiences were very crude experiences, right? But it, at least they show the glimpse of what it could be, right? And I think that the next generation, the next cohort of such uh, protocols will be will be very interesting to to follow. We're also another field that we like a lot is is social, right? I think none of us, you know, loves the current social network that we have, right? I think that there's this general conception that we've also been giving our data to these platforms without really getting a lot in return and what did we really get out of it. And I think that this paradigm is potentially a great way to, to, to improve on what social is today. And I don't know what it's going to look like exactly. I think it might look very different from what the social networks of today look like, but I think something is going to happen in social. So these three fields are really, you know, fields that, that we're very excited about. Well, we will be looking forward to seeing what 
companies you guys back and teams you guys back in 2024. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. And finally, we're joined by our AI reporter, Tim Smith, who's this week been reporting on London-based generative AI startup Stability AI, which last week announced a pretty big change to its business model in an attempt to build sustainable revenue to fund its research. Tim, remind us quickly, what does Stability do? Why is it such a kind of big deal, big name? The reason it's a big name is that it's one of very few European players trying to compete with the likes of OpenAI, Anthropic, these big Silicon Valley companies that are developing the base models for applications like ChatGPT or DALI. So Stability AI made a lot of headlines last year due to its role in developing Stable Diffusion, which is one of the big image generation models that became very popular off the back of the release of that. It raised a big $101 million Series A from big investors Lightspeed and Kotu to essentially offer a European alternative to some of those big Silicon Valley players. So it's strategic technology, not based in the States and convinced big investors that it could do this. And what's the big change in its business model it announced recently? So apart from just being based in Europe, the other way that stability differentiated itself was this sort of fiercely open source strategy. So the idea was that rather than keeping the code and the science behind these models closed in the way that OpenAI and others do, it completely open sourced everything so that anyone can build applications with it. It said that this would mean that more people would be able to benefit from the power of generative AI and that its technology would have more reach. And it said... This is a sort of tried and tested business model. You kind of charge users for premium access to it, but you let everyone use the core service. Last week, it said that it was putting its most powerful models behind a paywall. So no longer open source for enterprise customers. Non-commercial customers and researchers will still get free access to those models. But essentially, it's saying you will have to pay to use our models and Yeah, that's a big change for a company that really held itself up as this open source champion of the AI community. And why is it doing this? Is it not making enough money? Well, in a now deleted X formerly known as Twitter post, Emad Mustak, the CEO of the company, did give away some details about revenue at the company. He said that the yearly revenue as of October 22 would exceed $10 million dollars and that it had made $1.2 million of revenue in August and was hoping to break $3 million of revenue in November. So just to put this in perspective, OpenAI made $28 million of revenue in 2022, but in the process lost $450 million, and that is because these models are so expensive to train. Stability trains multiple generative AI models across text, image, audio, video. Those all cost a lot of money. So 10 million is not a lot in the grand scheme of things. If you think that OpenAI managed to lose half a billion while making 28 million in revenue. So yeah, if you don't have the backing of a large corporate, you need to raise big sums of money or you need to start generating serious revenue to keep this kind of business going. So yeah, this is obviously an attempt to create more revenue. Stability told us in response to this reporting that this monthly subscription is to better serve its enterprise customers and that the revenues will allow it to create even better, more impactful foundation models. So yeah, essentially it needs to generate more revenue to stay ahead of the curve. 
But you also spoke to some of its customers, didn't you? And it hasn't actually announced that many of its customers who said they weren't super happy with the service they're getting. Yeah, that's right. And we obviously weigh these things up case by case. And I spoke to two people who'd worked at Customers of Stabilities, one still working there, one former, which maybe wouldn't be loads in a normal case, but Stability has told us that it's working with four companies. So HubSpot, Home, Jasper, and Supermicro are the names. So two companies who are Customers of Stability AI felt like a significant number. And they both told me that the service that they got from Stability for premium access to its AI models was quite subpar. One of them said it was a joke internally that Stability AI is probably the least stable service we've ever worked with. If there was a bug, it took them much longer to fix than it did with a competitor like OpenAI. And these two people basically said that the service that they got wasn't particularly great. And one of them said it was winding up its business. So it has had trouble it would seem building that significant large customer base. And what did Stability say when we put those customers sort of complaints to them? They said it's APIs, not its core offering. So it's APIs, the use of these premium features. But it did also say that it remains committed to improving customer support. So they did take some ownership of the fact that perhaps it hasn't been all rosy on that front. Great. And what are we looking for? What's likely to come out next from Stability? Well, they've had a tough time, not just from us, but in the press generally. There is a chance that this new business model could be really good for them. It could end up that loads of people want it. It's a really good product and that, you know, they start generating heaps of revenue. And a lot of the negative headlines about struggling to raise money, that kind of thing, maybe those will go away now. But the facts of the matter and the commercial gravity remain that it needs a lot of money to train these models, which will need to come from external investors probably for the time being. So it needs to convince people that it can build a sustainable business. Thanks very much, Tim. And that's all we have time for. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all of our coverage on sifted.eu and all of the articles mentioned in this episode in the podcast description. Please also join us next week. I'm going to have an interview with Johanna Smaros, who is one of the co-founders of Finnish Unicorn Relics Solutions, where we talk about lots of stuff, her journey, her decade journey to being a founder and why she doesn't like being a manager so stay tuned for that and next year stay tuned for more in-depth one-on-one interviews with big big names big thinkers from europe's startup scene have a merry christmas from me see you bye